You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Three, two, one, and here we go again! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. Hopefully... You're having a great day, whether you're just getting ready to go to bed, you're driving in a car, you're on a treadmill, you're at work, you're hanging a tree stand, you're dunking a basketball, or you're eating food at an all-you-can-eat buffet. Hopefully your day is going great. Uh, I'm excited. we got another great podcast for you today. Today we're going to be talking with a gentleman named Jordan Howell. Uh, Jordan lived in North Carolina, born and raised in North Carolina. He decided, you know what? I want to kill bigger bucks. He moves to Indiana. Uh, After that, he goes and takes a shed hunting trip to Iowa, and he decides, you know what? I want to live in Iowa. So he takes that journey, and today's podcast, he walks us through that journey. Uh, It's pretty exciting, pretty cool how he's done everything that he's done. Um and the steps that he's taken to get there, not only from, you know, the moving standpoint, but from, you know, his journey as a whitetail hunter. So hopefully you guys enjoy the podcast. Now, I tell you what, here in Iowa, it has been raining for like four days straight. Uh, it looks like it, it, the sun is going to break by the end of the day on Tuesday. So I think you, most of you will be listening to it on a Tuesday. But uh, as soon as the, my garden dries out, it looks like the temperatures are going to be able to, uh, there's not going to be any more frost, hopefully, the rest of the year, well, up until, you know, after, uh, you know, the fall. But knock on wood that uh, I can get my garden planted. That's, so that's the next big step. And then as soon as that happens, uh, I'm going to start getting my trail cameras out over the mineral stations that I've already put out this year. And uh, I'm just, you know, every day is just another day closer to velvet rut. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm watering at the mouth to see what deer made it through the season. Uh, what, uh, what my three-year-olds are going to look like, what my four-year-olds are going to look like and what my mature bucks are going to look like, uh, this year. So, you know, it's like, like they say, it's like Christmas every morning when you check, check your trail cameras. So, oh, other than that, um, before we get into today's podcast, Let's hear from Skip from Gearhead about the materials they use 
to build their bows? Well, the materials that Gearhead uses in their bows are superior to, to other, other bow companies. Um, we use a 7075 grade aluminum um, that has twice the tensile strength and the fatigue strength as like your 6061s that other companies are using. And then we send that material out and we hard coat anodize it, which is putting like this armored shell around the, the aluminum. And a lot of that leads to just how good the bow shoots. It takes the vibration out of the bow. It, it just makes a very rigid, stout riser. And um, and that's kind of how we handle the aluminum side of things. But then we step it up a notch. We actually get into the uh, the carbon fiber. And a lot of people, they cast their carbon fiber. We actually machine our carbon fiber out of um, plates. It comes in these sheets of um, quasi-isotropic carbon is what they call it but basically it's 32 layers of carbon woven at 90 degrees to each other until they build up into like a quarter inch and then we machine it out with pockets embossed design so when it goes together it creates this riser that is it's really strong and really lightweight and there's there's no stresses in the materials at all it um we have one of the most stress-free risers that you can make so that's, that's why we don't skimp on anything at Gearhead. I mean, we use all the, the best quality materials that you can buy because that's what leads to the better products. I strongly suggest heading over to gearheadarchery.com and taking a look at these bows. All I can say is you need to go shoot one. Find where you can shoot one of these bows and go shoot it. Uh, it will definitely be worth your while. Uh, GearheadArchery.com. Now, let's get into today's podcast with Jordan Howell. All right, on the phone with me now, Jordan Howell. How are you doing today, Jordan? I'm good, Dan. Thanks. How are you? You know, I can't complain. Uh, we chatted a little bit before we started recording about uh, all this rain that we're having, I guess, Good for food plots if they're already planted, but bad for food plots if you haven't planted yet. Yeah, which is my case. I don't have anything <laughs> in the ground, so I'm, you know, looking out the window, you know, being all sad. It's actually it was pretty awful weather for turkey hunting too. So right, right. What season did you end up going? Uh, well, I got the uh, the resident archery tag and then okay. a, a fourth season tag, so I. Didn't get anything archery, so my my hope now is for fourth season. Nice, nice, yeah. And for the listeners, you live in Iowa, and today yeah. what we're we're going to talk about is your transition from where you originally were born and raised, and that was in North Carolina. Uh, you had a, a quick stop in Indiana, and uh, then you ended up moving to Iowa, uh, and I take it all that's revolves around deer hunting but before we get into all that how was your 2016 hunting season i take it that was your first season in iowa right yeah man it was it was an eye-opening experience um i mean i've i've hunted all over in different places and and this was my first uh, season here and i was really just trying to figure out the the properties that i had and just take in the whole you know, Iowa thing to see if it was, you know, everything everybody had talked it up to be. Um, it was a roller coaster, man. I, I got access to some good property and then lost access to one of them. And then, um, previous to this year, I had, I had had pretty good luck in being able to, 
shoot and recover deer. And for whatever reason this year, I, I lost two different deer and then ended up killing a, a pretty nice price deer on January 9th. I literally brought it down to the wire. So, right. Wow. That's crazy. So sounds like, you know, you were successful, but you had a, a little bit of a roller coaster ride and we'll get into a little bit more of that here in a little bit. But before we start, you know, the meat and potatoes of all this, where do you currently live and what do you do for a living? Um, I live in uh, South Central Iowa, um, kind of south of Des Moines. Um, I um, I work for a, a large uh, trucking company. Um, I'm I work in their their field office in Des Moines. I'm a sales rep. Okay. And what do you do? Just contact uh, companies that need freight haul, freight freight needs. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, I am. I spend about half my time on the road, just going and visiting either prospective or current customers, and um, you know, basically we haul for you know manufacturers, uh, retailers, um, anything like that, companies that need right. truckloads of stuff from A to B. All right. Now, you were born in North Carolina, right? Yep. And that's where you lived up until you were 22 years old. But what what was hunting like in North Carolina? And I don't mean, you know, success and not success and actually killing a deer, but talk a little bit about the tradition there as well. Who got you into it, so forth and so on. Well, yeah, but before I talk about my actual hunting experiences, it's actually kind of interesting how I got my start um, in hunting. Um I am a completely 100% self-taught hunter. Um, I'm the only one in my family uh, that hunts currently. Um, But what's interesting is what kind of fueled my desire for it is when I was a little boy, I used to listen to my dad. Um, My dad actually spent um, a lot of his uh, younger and middle-aged years out in Colorado and out west and had spent a lot of time hunting elk and mule deer and those types of things. And uh, for um, family and health reasons, he actually had to stop hunting um, a few years before I was born. Okay. Um, and so he never actually took me hunting. Uh, but I was always just enamored by listening to him talk about, you know, tracking an elk through the high country out in Colorado or or just seeing massive herds of mule deer, you know, migrating out of the high country. country. And I was just always fascinated by that. And so... Um, one day I went to uh, the video store. You know, they used to have these places where you could go and rent VHS tapes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they used to, some of them, I don't know, they did in North Carolina, had like a hunting video section. And uh, I rented this hunting video on whitetails and uh, watched that. And I was, I was hooked. I just, I didn't know anything about hunting whitetails. I'd never hunted one my my dad never even really hunted whitetails. He hunted out west, but I, all I knew is I wanted to do that. Um, and so I begged and begged my parents. Uh, I actually begged them for a rifle, and my my mom wasn't comfortable when I was 13 for me having a rifle, so we settled on a bow. And uh, that was probably the greatest decision she ever made in my life because I was addicted to bow hunting as soon as I got one. Um, but being that I was self-taught, you know, just a young teenager and where I lived in North Carolina wasn't even like 
the deer rich part of the state. I grew up way up in the mountains where, you know, if you saw a deer during a day of hunting, that was a good day. There's just not a lot of deer that live there. Yeah. And, uh, so it took me, um, I think five years to kill a deer with my bow. Okay. And uh, it was, what were the numbers like? Um, deer numbers. Yeah. Uh, I, I would say two to three deer per square mile, maybe. Okay. I mean, where I grew up, there's virtually no agriculture. It's all big, giant tracts of national forest and it's real mountainous. And so the deer aren't, their movement isn't concentrated. They just kind of wander through the timber. Okay. So it's, it's, what's the typical food source there? Uh, acorns, uh, and then a lot of soft mass. Um, there's, it's basically all browse. I mean, you'll, there aren't really any fields to speak of. Um, and so you, they basically just, just browse in the timber. Okay. Uh, so then you, you know, you, you ended up harvesting your first deer, which was a button buck. And how many years was that? Of bow hunting that was before five you five years. Five years. Okay, so five years it took mm-hmm. you to harvest your first deer. And at what age were you at that point? Eighteen. Uh, Eighteen. Okay. So how? And you had been hunting for five years with a bow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you got five years under your belt. You finally harvested a deer. Um, was there a point then during that initial harvest where you're just like, man, I got to do this more, you know, cause I, I take it by then you, you know, you started seeing the big racks, you know, if you're any type of hunter, you, you look at magazines and you think, you know, you start looking at some of these magazines or some of these videos and you're like, oh my God, look at these big, big bucks. You know, I want to kill one of those someday. Is that when you started playing around with the idea of leaving North Carolina for greener pasture, so to speak? Um, yeah, I, I definitely, you know, became, um, I guess, the more the more I hunted, even though I was admittedly not very good at it, the, the more I loved it. I just loved being out there. I loved every part of it. Um, and initially, before I even considered leaving the state, I started hunting further and further east in the state, getting down out of the mountains into more of the agricultural areas. Okay. Um, and once I did that, um, I did actually start to have a lot more success. Um, and, you know, was actually able to hunt some areas that had some, you know, 120 to 130 inch deer, which, you know, for me having not killed very many deer and even in that part of the part of the country, that's, that's a pretty nice deer. Um, and so I basically spent um, basically probably the next three years really concentrating on trying to, to hunt the biggest deer I had available in my home state. Um, okay. And moving out of the state really hadn't, hadn't entered on my radar. It was just kind of, you know, that'd be nice to do one day. But I'd never seen a Midwest deer outside of, you know, being on TV. Um, and then at a... Uh, a family reunion, I met one of my cousins who actually lived um, up in the Midwest, up in Indiana. And he was a hunter. And he said, man, you ought to come up and, and hunt with me. You know, you ought to take a week off and come up during November and we'll show you some real hunting. I'm like, all right. Um, so I did. The, the next year I took a week off. I went up there and 
on on our scouting day, he took me out and, you know, right away, just by pure luck, we stumbled across these two probably 140-inch bucks bedded down. And I I completely freaked out. Like, I shut down like I I couldn't talk or speak. <laughs> like, I, I'd never seen a deer that big in my life, you know. Right. And not, not just the racks, but, you know, the bodies. I, if you hunt in the south, you know, a deer that's 170 or 80 pounds is gigantic. And, right. you know, I, I go up to northern Indiana and there's these 250 and 75-pound deer. I didn't know what to do. Um, and I I just knew that, that I wanted to be there and hunt that. Um, and so I hunted there uh, that fall. Um, and I actually... Um, was able to shoot um, my second largest deer uh, ever. I I shot um, 160 inch deer on my second day there. Um, awesome. And that, yeah, it was that hunt. I never should have killed that deer. It, you know, I I got in my in my stand, sat there all day, and it was, you know, snowing sideways, and I didn't see a racked buck all day. I saw like nine does, I think. And, uh, I got pretty frustrated because the weather was awful and I like broke the cardinal rule. I got down out of my tree, like an hour before dark, put my stand on my back and I'm walking across this cut cornfield. I'm like, I'm going to go back to my truck and just try to ride around and find a different spot for tomorrow. And, uh, I'm actually walking back to my truck and I have to wade across this, uh, like Creek to get to my truck. And uh, as I'm walking towards my truck, this doe runs out of the timber and stands on the creek bank right between me and my truck. And I'm watching her. And then right behind here, I, I, I hear just this huge, deep, guttural grunt. And this massive buck just walks out of the timber up from the creek bank. And he's standing there right behind her. Doesn't see me because he's tending her. Um, and so I ended up sitting down in the corn stubble on my butt and easing my stand off my back, getting an arrow. And, and I shot him at like 45 yards. Wow. You know, so it was a, it was a pure luck thing that I encountered that deer, but right. that particular deer, I don't even know how to explain it. It, it lit a fire in me that, you know, I just, I had come to love hunting and deer so much that I just, I wanted to be able to immerse myself in that all the time. Right. Um, and so my, um, my wife, she has always been pretty supportive of me, uh, thankfully. And I told her, you know, this is something that I would really like to do. Um, and she has a lot of family even in, in North Carolina, but she was like, okay, let's do it. And so I left my job there, got a job in Indiana and we moved and, uh, so basically that started the the next chapter. Gotcha. So before we transition to Indiana, you know, there's there's something that happened from when you started hunting in the, the hills and the mountains and you decided to um, head east in your own state to, you know, I guess try to find the biggest deer in your state. What was it? that was driving you east, right? Were you, what were you looking for? Were you looking for maturity? Were you looking for antler size? Were you looking at uh, just a different terrain? What were you looking for that was that first kick to get out of where you were currently hunting and go east in your own state? 
Well, honestly, it was huntability uh, of the land. Um, I'm, you know, not one of those people that, you know, has, you know, a family farm that's, you know, a whole bunch of land. I don't own any land. And so I've always been, you know, like a lot of hunters, I have to make do with the best I can find. Um, and I, and I knew that where I grew up, the chances of being able to pattern a deer are very slim. Uh, because first of all, there's not that many deer to try to pick one out that is patternable. And then the terrain just doesn't lend itself to that. Um, and so I've, I've always been about trying to, to hunt the most killable deer that I can find. Um, and, and the more I hunt, the more I believe in that. Um, and so moving East out of the mountains, there's more, more agricultural and, and the timber isn't in, in such vast chunks where, you know, it's hard to pattern the deer inside those, you know, you start to see a little bit more structure with the timber and fingers and stuff like that, where it becomes at least somewhat easier to predict deer movement. Right. Um, and so that, that was my reasoning, you know, where I can, in the mountains, in the national forest, I could put up a trail camera and I might get a picture of seven different bucks throughout the entire season and never see any of them again, because they just wander, you know, whereas if you've got some structure, you can actually try to find specific deer to, to try to go after. And that's, that's one of the things I enjoy about it the most is I enjoy trying to find, you know, the, that set, you know, some people call it a hit list or whatever, but I enjoy finding specific deer to try to target that I believe are in the top, you know, 10% of deer in whatever area. All right. So, so then when you went to Indiana and you ended up killing that 160 inch buck, was that the second buck that you killed with a bow? No, uh, I had killed, um, several in North Carolina in, in between then. Okay, because um, I, is, I would is North Carolina one uh, of those states that it, you can shoot multiple deer throughout the entire multiple bucks throughout the entire season. Yes, yeah, so North North Carolina is divided up into three zones, um, okay. and the, there's an eastern, a central, and a, and a mountain zone. Um, and in the eastern zone, where I hunted some, you can shoot four bucks, okay. um, and then in the central and western, you can shoot two. Okay. Um, so I, I don't know the exact number, but I would imagine probably, I don't know, eight to 10, uh, I would say decent bucks in North Carolina in between my first one and the time I moved. Okay. So that was four years. So you shot mm-hmm. about 10 bucks in four years. Something like that. Something like that. Okay, cool. All right. So then you're 22, you and you and your wife decide, Hey man, let's go to Indiana. She supported you. Um, you know, that 160 inch buck kind of lit a fire underneath you. It sounds like describe what it was like leaving something that you were familiar with and going and from a hunting standpoint and going and trying to find new property to hunt. Well, that's an interesting question because for me, the finding property to hunt was probably one of the most daunting things when I moved to Indiana because I could look at a map on Google Earth and tell you that the terrain is different 
and the timber is set up different in Indiana versus where I grew up. But what I didn't know is how different the people are. They like Explain. the hunting culture where I grew up. It's just like, it's real laid back. People just like hanging out with their buddies. You know, it was really pretty easy to go and get permission on a piece of property to hunt. Okay. Um, that is not the case where I went to in Indiana. Um, the overall, the percentage of timber is way less. You know, you've got these big, vast ag fields and little pockets of timber and a lot of hunters. And so the competition is a lot greater. Plus you add in the fact that you're in the Midwest. And so there is that trophy potential aspect that makes people act ridiculous sometimes. Yep. And I was not coming from the South where I grew up. I was not prepared for that. And so when I came up and I start knocking on doors and I'm all excited about getting places to hunt in Indiana. And like my first year there, I pretty much, I mean, I had spots to hunt, but they were the spots that nobody else wanted to hunt. Yeah. Like it was, it was tough. And so I had to kind of adapt my strategy a little bit. So let, I want to talk a little bit about that. I mean, what was some of the strategy that you used when you went to approach some of these landowners to hunt on their property? I mean, I've written, I've written story or articles about it. I've done podcasts about it. Um, I talked with others about it. What was your specific strategy to gaining access? Well, um, I mean, I just am pretty honest and, and upfront with people in the beginning. Um, and you know, for what it's worth, I, for some reason, I tend to have more success when I take my wife with me. Uh, <laughs> you dog. I'm not sure why that is, but, <laughs> um, but I mean, for example, it, on, on year two, when I went there, um, you know, and I had had the first year permission on a couple small properties that weren't really all that great. Yeah. Um, there was this one particular farm that I had my eye on and just driving by it. I'd studied it on Google maps and I knew based on just looking at it, that this property held a ton of deer. It just had to. Yeah. And <clears throat> I knew that the farmer that owned it didn't live close by. He was in another part of the state. One day I drove by and there was a tractor out there. Um, and so I went by, introduced myself, um, talked to him, just told him what I was looking for. And, and he goes, yeah, I have an awful lot of people ask me about hunting. He's like, but I just, I really don't have time to be worrying about, you know, what could happen. I've got farms all over the state. But he was a super nice guy. Yeah. Um, so I just kind of left it at that. Um, this probably, and this was during planting season in the spring. Um, I was driving back through there on my way home from work in late September, and he was he was out there harvesting beans, and his his tractor was broke down. I stopped. I went and I talked to him again, um, and I actually helped him. Uh, get his tractor running again. And I never brought up hunting. I didn't even bring it up. I just thanked him. I, I mean, I, you know, he thanked me for helping him. 
And uh, so I just went on my way. And uh, the next day he called me and he says, uh, why don't you come down to my house? He's like, um, I've got a couple farms that I could probably let you bow hunt. Awesome. So that fall, I got to bow hunt a couple of, couple of his farms. Um, and then the following spring, and we had kind of become friends, and it turns out that he owned like 3,000 acres of other farms, and he gave me permission to all of those. So, so you, just, you pretty much landed, you hit the jackpot just by going and helping this guy with a tractor and not getting greedy and asking, you know, if you could hunt while you were there. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't make it about the hunting. I mean, I mean, because when I first met him, he had, you know, kind of complained about how many people ask him about hunting. And so, yeah. you know, I didn't want to be that guy, you know? Right, right. So then, you know, as you created this friendship with him, he allowed you to, you know, access to all of his other property on, on that particular property, that 3000 acres that he owned, how many other guys were out there already bow hunting? Um, on a couple of the farms, um, there were a couple, Okay. um, and then there were a couple guys that shotgun hunted a couple of them. Um, but for the most part, there really wasn't that much pressure. Um, and I know on, on two of the farms in particular, I was the only one that had any permission out there. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so how did, you know, you got, you landed some property, the very, was this the very first season that, you were out there or was this the second season? This was the second. Second season. Okay. So how was your first year as a resident? You know, you said it was tough. Were you successful at all? Did you run into any? Because uh, sometimes I'm a big fan of, okay, well, it doesn't look good, but that doesn't mean that there's not deer working that area. You know what I mean? Did you run into any hot spots uh, just because no one was hunting them? I did. Um, I um, One of the farms that I got permission on was literally a 300-acre field with one tree on it. Oh, wow. Yeah, one giant oak tree out in the middle of a 300-acre field, and the field is completely flat. Okay. So, I mean, doesn't sound all that exciting, but on two sides of that field, it was completely surrounded by timber. So the deer would actually pour out into there in the evenings. And, but it was so hard to pinpoint where they would come out, but I would always see a ton of deer and I actually saw quite a few big deer. Um, and the buck that I got my first year, um, I, I hadn't learned how to, field judge midwestern deer yet so i you know i saw 125 inch deer and and he was a goner but yeah i actually found out you know how how deer will use a wide open field and how they will pick where they where they walk in it like if there's a just a slight rise and then a little saddle on the back side where they can walk without being seen from the road you'd be surprised how many deer will do that oh yeah um, oh yeah. And so that's literally how I killed that deer. I, I, I had a, a ground blind that I set up 
literally on top of, of this little knoll out in the middle of the field and all the deer were, or at least a lot of deer would funnel around the backside of it. And that, so I did, uh, I did shoot a deer my first, my first year here, but you know, it wasn't a, a monster to write home about. Right. Right. So then you got access to all this property, you know, for the, for the following year. Um, was, was that even more of an eye opener to what was running around on these farms? I mean, did you start running trail cameras at that point or were you running trail cameras at that point between, you know, during the summer or fall to get an idea of what was on those properties? Uh, absolutely. I, I made a big investment in trail cameras and I, even now I, I believe very heavily in them. I mean, you know, I've always tried to pay attention to what people who know a lot more about deer than me um, are saying, you know, guys like Mark Drury or, or something like that. Um, and I've always tried to limit my own intrusion in, into the woods, but try to gather as much information from the deer, you know, right. as I can. Um, and I, w- I was honestly like a kid in a candy store that second year. I had, I had never had a trail camera picture of a hundred and 60 70 inch deer and the first time i got one it you know i'm running around the house showing my wife you won't believe what i got a picture of <laughs> and she i don't know is she the type that gets excited for you or because of that or is she the yeah type but that's i mean like, she's eh. like oh that that's that's nice <laughs> that's funny <laughs> i just remember uh you know i don't know if you do that or any of the listeners do this but you know you're flipping through your trail camera pictures of maybe I don't know when the deer are finished growing sometime in about, or you know how big they're going to be sometime in around July. And you're just like, okay, okay, here's a, you know, here's a small one, small one, small one. And then boom, it's that first picture of like a true giant just standing there posing for your trail camera. And you're just like, woo! and then, you know, my wife, anyway, she's like, what are you, what's wrong? I'm like, uh, I got a, big picture of a big buck and she's just like oh okay i thought there was an emergency oh i when that happens to me every year like my heart starts beating fast just like one (laughs) walked under my tree or something (laughs) that's funny so you got these big deer on trail camera um what was i mean what was your goal i mean i know this is you've had experience once one season hunting there and then one season living there and hunting there um what was your approach to this new type of midwestern hunting on this you know these big properties that you got access to uh, well uh, before i i really started hunting i i kind of made a mental you know contract with myself, you know, based on what had happened my first year with shooting that two-year-old. You know, I basically said, you know, you didn't pick up your life and, and move to where you have no family and no friends to start over to shoot two-year-old deer. Right. And so I, I, had, I made a mental pact with myself that I was not going to shoot another two-year-old deer ever. Okay. Um, and, and that's, nothing against anybody else who does that. That's just something that for me, that was my goal. You know, that's why I moved to the Midwest is to be able to pursue these big, more mature deer. And so I made like a mental note with myself, you know, I'm going to eat my tag before I do that again. Right. Right. And so that, that actually, and I think trail cameras 
helped me so much with that. And they have throughout the years where if you don't have trail camera history with a deer and a nice buck pops up, you know, you're wanting to shoot that deer. But if it's a deer that you have a lot of pictures with and it pops up and it's like, Oh, that's that two year old nine point or whatever. And he's, you know, I don't even reach for my bow now. Right. Right. Um, And I think I can, I think that's a good point to people who are maybe in this position where they've killed a lot of, I don't know, two-year-olds or three-year-olds or whatever they're currently on, you know, whatever your current goal is. And you say, Hey, I want to, I want to step up to the next level, whatever level it is that you choose to step up to. And trail cameras can help you identify deer so much better. Uh, It will literally help you. I'm a huge supporter of it. It will help you identify what not to shoot and then say, okay, uh, you know, like you said, I don't want to shoot that deer because it's not the level that I want to reach. It's not my goal. Um, so I can pass it just exactly what you said. Yeah. It just, it makes making that management decision at the time he walks under you a whole lot easier. If you've mentally prepared yourself for that beforehand. Right. Right. So you identify, you got some deer on trail camera that were big. It's, you know, it's the reason, the reason that you moved to the Midwest to Indiana was to chase bigger bucks and a bigger, you know, an older age class of deer. Everything is, is, I guess, coming together for you. Um, talk about, talk about where you were at, what you were thinking as the uh, season started to open in Indiana for that, that, for that inaugural, I guess I'll say the, the second year. Well, I had, I spent so much time studying these properties and and going out in the summertime and just trying to take it all in. Um, And I really tried to start focusing on why were these deer using certain areas? Um, And I, in scouting these properties in the woods and stuff, I, I realized that at least where I was in Indiana, a deer's biggest determining factor on where he's living is, has more to do with who else is hunting and their hunting practices around. Um, I was honestly blown away by the amount of hunting pressure there and that there were still big deer. Right. Um, you know, it, in the area I was in, you know, it's pretty flat. And so you've got these, you know, geometric shaped blocks of timber and there was you know tree stands all around the all around every property line and so i i quickly learned that i would have to be hunting the other hunters as much as i was the deer right um and so in doing that i basically um, i actually ended up eliminating a couple of those farms that i didn't think would be real productive you know i just kind of leave a camera there just in case but decided I really wasn't going to focus my effort there because either a, I felt there was too much pressure from neighbors or other hunters that I couldn't overcome, or, um, I didn't feel like I could access that property and hunt it effectively without making it worse, which to me is probably the most important thing from a hunting standpoint, um, is, is, is being able to access the property. Um, and so I, once I narrowed it down to a couple of farms that I felt pretty confident in, I just started to kind of drill in on, you know, if it, if a big deer, if I'm getting consistent pictures of a big deer on this farm, why, 
why, why, why is he choosing to spend, you know, X amount of minutes per day on this property? What is it that's keeping him here? Um, and so I, I just tried to figure that out for these different deer and then base my plan of attack on those deer on, on that. So I want to talk a little bit about hunting pressure for that piece of property. You mentioned that there was still big deer in the area, but still a lot of hunting pressure. Do you, what do you think contributes to that? Do you think that it was because there's just less hunters in the area um, compared to, let's say a state like, uh, I don't know, that you came from like North Carolina, the hunters were bad and they just were never successful or the fact that uh, everybody had higher standards uh, and they weren't killing, you know, two and three year old bucks. Well, I definitely don't think the the hunters where I grew up were bad. In fact, I think if you find a hunter out of the South that's able to kill mature deer there, I think they can kill mature deer anywhere um, because I think it's the most difficult to do down there. Um, but I think it's first and foremost, just genetics. Um, I just think that area just has really good genetics. Um, and they also have a, a one buck limit there. Right. And so a lot of guys aren't shooting the one and two year olds because they only get one buck tag. Okay. All right. So then, so then what do you think was the reason you know, cause I hunt on what I, I'm not comparing the farm that I hunt to a piece of public ground in, let's say Michigan or Pennsylvania, but just like a majority of people out there on my farm, I have to compete with other hunters. They put pressure on a piece of property. I put pressure on a piece of property. And as we all know, as as uh, hardcore bow hunters, the more pressure you put in, the more that affects the deer. So how do you feel? Why do you feel that there was still, that there was good pressure on that property, but still big bucks? Uh, Well, in that particular farm, um, I think it was because the way it laid out, the part of the farm that, that I had access to was, um, upwind of the predominant wind direction for most of the hunting season, um, which I think made the deer or at least the bucks feel more comfortable bedding in there because most of the activity and most of the way and the easy way to access that property and all the other ones was from the upwind direction. Okay. And it, it, it was very difficult to dip to access that property um, with anything but an east wind and not have deer bust you. Okay. So the, the layout of the farm basically just was a huge benefit for the deer because they could, they could smell, hear, or see anybody or anything coming into the farm. Yeah, and in that area, scent travels a long way. I mean, this is certain parts of Indiana are, are real hilly, like down in southern Indiana. You know, it's kind of like southern Iowa, but up in northern Indiana where I was at, I mean, think of a, like a pool table with trees on it. It's it's super flat, and so your scent stream can go a long way. I got you. And I think these bucks were just super comfortable being that this property, at least the, the thickest part of the timber, was it set up very well for deer and very poorly for hunters as far as accessing it from any type of a southern or westerly wind. 
I got gotcha. you. All right. So then uh, jumping forward to that particular season, um, did you accomplish a goal of harvesting uh, that next level buck? Um, did you have any trials and tribulations? Uh, were you successful or whatnot? Uh, that, that second year, I, I had to uh, live up to um, the promise I'd made myself. I, I ate my buck tag that year. Okay. Um, and I... It, it was a weird feeling, you know, the first time you pass up, you know, that 120, 130 inch deer and he walks by you and then he goes by and you're like, did that just happen? Did I just pass that deer? Right. Um, it gets easier the more you do it. But that first year, it, it made me a little bit uncomfortable doing that. But I, I stuck to my guns. Um, and I just, with not having been there very long, I didn't have a lot of vacation time to burn and so I was basically like an evening and weekend guy. And so... Um, you know, I had some opportunities at some younger deer, but I, I didn't kill one my second year. Okay. So then you were in Indiana from the age of 22 to till the age of 29. Uh, mm-hmm. As you started, you know, as you were there those seven years, how, I mean, did you, did you see success? Um, what were, what were those next seven years like? hunting in Indiana? Well, I, I tried to improve uh, my strategy every year. Um, and even though I had access to um, a lot of acres and, and some pretty decent property, I never I never stopped looking. Um, there's, I never believe you can have too many options to hunt. And so I always kept trying to find that next best spot. Um, and uh, about... You know, this, I would say February of year three, um, I actually found um, what I would ref- became my honey hole up there. Um, it was actually an old abandoned um, gravel pit. It had been mined back in the 40s and then closed, and it had basically grown up since then. It was just like 65 acres of the thickest, nastiest briars and timber you could imagine. Right. Um, and it had, it was like the hub of a wheel. It had timber from neighboring properties that fed into it. And it was, it was all a hundred percent cover. There was no food in there. I mean, it was, it was actually impossible to hunt at first because it was so thick, but I ended up finding that property. Um, uh, the first year I hunted it for free. And then the, uh, the landowner, had said he'd had a couple offers to lease it. And so I ended up leasing it from him until I, until I moved. Um, and the, uh, the improvements I was able to make on that place turned it into, uh, probably my best spot that I had there. Um, and I was pretty successful there in, in subsequent years. Okay. Now what was success? Uh, I, I took, um, two deer over 140 off of the property Okay. Um, and then I actually had a, a buddy of mine come up and visit me from North Carolina and, uh, he shot a one ninety. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing, but that's just how it goes, man. You're nice. Uh, he comes up and you offer your lease to him and he shoots an 190 inch buck. 
Yep, yep, yeah. We were we're great friends. I mean, we grew up together. We went to school together. Um, you know, we've known each other since we were little, and and uh, and so he wanted to. To, I invited him up, you know, he didn't even really ask. I invited him and asked him if he wanted to come up and hunt with me. And, and so he did. And, uh, I had had a, a really, really big deer, uh, on camera for a couple of years at that lease. And, and I had never seen him in person, but I'd had a ton of cameras, you know, always had him on camera. Um, and the one stand that I always hunted that deer out of, I had hunted probably six times that year, never seen him. And his second morning here, I put him in that stand and he shot him. So, <laughs> so th- did your, did your buddy at least take you out for dinner, maybe buy you a steak or something <laughs> like that? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Um, <laughs> I have a he, lot of, he, I have a lot of good friends. A couple times. I have a lot of good friends, right? And man, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I would invite friends to come on my property, but if there was a 190-inch buck running around there, I might say, yeah, how about we just wait until next year to come? <laughs> wow, that's awesome. You you won Best Friend Award that year for sure. Yeah, well, it it pretty much, I mean, we were already great friends, but he's also uh, my taxidermist, so I get, I get a pretty sweet deal from now on. So Okay, okay, there's the angle, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Now, so that, you know, Indiana is, was successful, right? I mean, you had encounters with big deer, you had big deer on your farms, uh, mature deer on your farms. You hit 29. And why did you decide to leave that and say, okay, I want to go to Iowa now? Well, um, two years ago, this would have been the spring of, uh, 2015. I decided, um, I had some time off of work and I, a few years ago, I just completely fell in love with shed hunting. I just, I, I get almost as, as much fun out of finding an antler uh, as I do shooting a deer. I just, I get super excited about it. I mean, I, I probably give your your buddy to run for his money <laughs> on how excited I get. But, um, I, I wanted to come out to Iowa to shed hunt because, you know, I, I always hear about it. It's the land of the giants. You know, you, you see it all over TV and, and everybody says it's different in Iowa than it is everywhere else. And I, I honestly thought it can't be that much different. I mean, it's, it's the Midwest, Indiana, Illinois, that they have all, all got to be pretty much the same. Um, and so I came out, uh, with my wife to do a shed hunt, um, just came out and knocked on doors and walked a lot of public land. And, uh, I completely fell in love with Southern Iowa. There's just something about it. Just, I don't know. I just loved everything about it. The habitat quality, I think in Southern Iowa is more conducive to producing more big deer than, than anywhere that I've ever been. Um, and just the numbers of deer and the amount of deer sign, you know, I, I could tell right away that, yeah, it is different here. Yeah. Um, and, and so my wife and I, I talked to her about it. Um, and she was actually kind of relieved because, you know, we had moved to Indiana with her blessing, but she didn't really like it there. Um, 
and when she, we came and visited Iowa, she liked it a lot better. Okay. Um, and it took us a year um, to uh, to realize that goal, but and I knew it would be a big step again because it meant another job change and you know making all the sacrifices necessary to pick up your life again and move to another new place where you don't know don't know anybody and uh, you know start all over from square one as far as hunting properties again. Um, but we did. Nice. And what year was that? Uh, when we first came out or when we moved? When you ended up moving to Iowa. That was uh, in spring of 2016, last year. Okay, all right. So, you know, was there any difference between Indiana and Iowa as far as gaining access to new farms? Or did you decide to to lease a property? Um, well, believe it or not, um, I... I have found that it has been um, a lot easier to secure access in Iowa than it was in Indiana. Okay. Um, How I, do you think I that is? I don't know if that's just – well, a lot of it is there just aren't that many people that live here. Um, and re- I think regardless of what you see on TV with all, all the shows that are, that are filmed in Iowa and talk about Iowa, when, when you get there, there's just so much – I think there really is a lot of untouched land still where there just aren't enough people that, that live out in the country that have even asked. Um, I mean, literally within two weeks after I moved here, I, I had permission on a couple really, really good farms. Um, and that doesn't mean that I, I didn't get a lot of no's. I mean, I certainly did, but, um, in general, I actually think that the hunting pressure is a lot, less in Iowa and I think that's one of the big contributors why there's more big deer right okay so then how long did it take you once you moved there to get access to to farms how many farms did you get access to how many uh you know landowners and whatnot um well three days for the first one (laughs) I uh I didn't waste any time um I actually um, when we moved here, um, I had already been pre-scouting on, uh, Google earth and I'm just, you know, when we moved here, you know, like, like I said, I made a mental pact with myself when we moved to Indiana about not shooting any two-year-olds. I did that again when we moved here. I said, okay, now it's time for the next level. If we're going to do this, I'm not going to shoot any more three-year-olds. You know, I want farms that can produce four and five year old deer every year. Um, and so I decided this is, you know, I, I don't have plans on, on going anywhere else. And so I was completely fine with if it takes me a year or two or three to find a really, really good farm. I'm, I'm okay with that. Right. Um, I just didn't go out and start randomly knocking on doors. I, I, I spent, I don't know, probably tens of hours studying Google earth and, looking at harvest data and trying, I picked out specific areas, you know, of, of, of the state to, and then broke it down into even specific parcels that I wanted to try to see if I could get access to. And I basically had a list of doors that I wanted to knock on. And every single person on that list had a farm that I felt at least based on, you know, 
internet scouting looked like it would hold mature deer. Right. Um, and I actually got lucky on the, uh, one of those farms, um, that I had found it, it's pretty amazing coincidence. Actually, one of those farms I had picked out, um, we went to, uh, a new church once we got to our new house in Iowa and the lady that owned one of those farms went there. So I met her and, uh, ended up getting permission on that like three days after he moved here. So that was good. Nice. Nice. So when you decided to move to Iowa, did you find a place to hunt first and then look for jobs or did you find a job and then decide, okay, well, I'm going to live here and then just travel an hour or two down to my hunting spots? Well, I mean, you, you have to, you know, be smart. I mean, I, I, I didn't move here until I had a job in hand. Um, yeah. you know, I had a job that I was able to start immediately. Um, and even now we're not living, you know, super close to where most of my good hunting is. You know, most of my good hunting's about 45 minutes to an hour from my house. Um, but you know, we're, my eventual goal is to actually move closer into that area. But, you know, basically I had to to start a job pretty quick. And so we found a house that was available and reasonable, um, basically just to get us here. But, um, but I don't, you know, an hour drive to me isn't really that bad to, you know, when you're talking about the, the quality of hunting that we have here. Right. For sure. For sure. I mean, that's about the average. Uh, it's about, I'd say, 60 to 70 minutes it takes me to get from my house to the farm, my main farm, I guess I, I would say. Um, but then again, I have a place to stay once I'm down there. So, you know, your first year in Iowa, this 2016 season, um, how, ma- how many acres did you have access to at the start of this season? Um, about 1100, about 1100 acres. Okay. That's a, that's a lot. And, you know, again, that makes the the listeners go, Oh my God, 1100 acres to hunt. But we also have to remember that some of those are probably ag too, right? Well, yeah. I mean, one of the farms is, you know, a 400 acre cow pasture. So, I mean, (laughs) there's maybe seven acres of timber on the whole place. Right. So, so 1100 isn't necessarily huntable acres. Um, and that's what I think a lot of people have this misconception where, you know, there's, especially for Iowa, there's like a booner around every corner on every farm. Um, but we also, for, for example, I think I have access to somewhere around 1500 to 2000 acres in Iowa, but if you want to talk about actual hunting acres, that drops down to like 200 to 300 acres. So right, exactly. It, it, so the ratio isn't really that, you know, and then you start adding other guys into it. Then you can start seeing, Hey, there's a little bit of pressure here. Did you have any pressure um, on these Iowa farms or were you the only guy on them? Um, on one of them, um, there is, um, another guy. Um, and for that reason, I, I really only hunted there a couple times, but on all of the other ones, I'm, I'm the only guy. Nice. Okay. Now the, the 2016 season rolls around and I take it you had trail cameras out again. 
Yeah, I I had I think I had somewhere around thirty trail cameras out this summer. <laughs> You're not, man. Man, <laughs> thirty trail cameras. Yeah, you should see my battery bill. <laughs> I hear that. Now you 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 checked let's say the first time you checked your trail cameras or let's say July August runs runs around were you happy that you made this move to Iowa I mean were there big deer uh on on your oh, cameras dude, I was it was like I don't know every holiday you could think of all, all rolled into one all at once the first wow. Because I put my cameras out, I want to say about mid-June, and I didn't go and check them up until like the end of July. Okay. Um, and so I had a bunch of pictures to go through, and I just started, you know, clicking through, and it's big buck after big buck after big buck, and then a couple really, really big deer. And I, I had a lot of those moments we were talking about earlier where the hair on my arm stood up, my heart was beating fast. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> okay, yeah. So, so this Iowa thing is for real. For real. Okay. All right. Now, you you got these these pictures. Did that change your goals or your expectations uh, going into that season? Yes, one hundred percent. It did. Um, okay. Going into it, I I didn't really know what I was getting myself into, but I just had my sights set on a mature deer. Right. Um, and once I started seeing some of the deer I actually had pictures of, I was like, holy crap. And I, at the beginning of the year, I, I devoted myself to, um, two particular deer. Um, and I wasn't going to shoot any deer other than those two. Was that hard to do? It was, it was very hard to do. Um, in fact, one of the other, the hardest day I've ever had in the stand was November 8th. I, I think I passed up 13 bucks over 130, 140 um, yeah. in one morning because I was waiting on one particular deer. And that's, you know, but you get to talk about it later and it's a really cool experience. You know, I talked to my buddies back home South and I'm like, you're insane. Why, why would you pass up that many deer? But it's, I've actually told this to some of my buddies that, that, once you live here, it's like your mindset changes. Like it doesn't bother me to pass those deer now. Right. Yeah. I've been, I've been there before, man. Uh, I get to the point where hopefully it, you don't, you don't have to go through this, but I, I reached a point once where I became like, one particular deer I was obsessed with. Uh, he had never, you know, I had encounters with him and I never, sealed the deal but he i thought about this particular buck for so long that i was passing deer that would have been the biggest buck of my life in order to hopefully run in with him which i don't necessarily regret that decision over the years but it may have helped me become a better hunter if i decided to you know but then again a 200 inch deer is a very very rare rare thing even in Iowa. Even in Iowa. Amen. 170s rare in Iowa. Believe yeah, it or not. Contrary to what everybody thinks elsewhere. Right, for sure. Or, or what you <laughs> see on t- on TV. But 
Yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, 2016, you had some encounters and some bad luck with some pretty big deer. I did. Um, I um, so one of the the two deer that I I had targeted. Uh, one was um, over 200, um, without question. Um, and he was on one particular farm. Describe what um, he looked like. Um, he's a, a typical 10, um, uh, with, uh, G2s and G3s are probably both of 14 and then probably eight inch G4s, um, just a really big typical. And then he's got like double muley forks off of both G2s and then a whole bunch of trash around his base. Gotcha. All right. So what that was number one, that he was your, he was your number one buck. Mm-hmm. All right. So how many um, encounters did you have with that particular buck? Uh, um, nine. Year? Nine? I saw him nine times. Okay. So you saw him nine times. You had him pretty much, you know, located. Um, what was he doing that, I mean, we're not talking nine, nine times where you shot and missed on him, right? No. No, no. So, how, I, so you I had nine encounters. Saw the deer on nine different days of hunting. Okay, so what was what was it like? I mean, were were you playing cat and mouse with him? Yeah, um, because this the particular farm that I got his picture on um, is really rolling in hills, okay. um, and there's a lot of CRP ground and a lot of um, like uh, just like little fingers full of cedars and stuff. There's not really a lot of timber on it. Right. But it holds just a ridiculous amount of deer. I mean, the deer density is probably the highest of any property I've ever been on. Um, and the key to this farm is there's a big central alfalfa field right in the center. It's like down in this bowl. You know, the deer have to come up over these CRP hills to, to drop down into it. Okay. But the problem is, since it's CRP, you can't really predict effectively which direction that the deer are going to come from. Um. And so every time I would see this deer, I was hunting this farm uh, basically out of hay bale blinds because that was the most conducive to get to where I wanted to be, to where these deer were coming out. Um, And we're talking, you know, 50 to 75 does a night in the South Alpha every night, Um, even in early season, like in October. Okay. And I would see this deer, he would come out on the neighbor's tree line walk 300 yards into the alfalfa and so i would see him do that for a couple nights move the hay bale blind and then he would come out on the other side of the field and it was just this back and forth thing um all throughout october trying to i think i saw him four times in october um four different evening hunts uh, come out of the same block of timber but always on a different trail and would enter the field in a different spot and so, you know, being a bow hunter, I mean, it, it was pretty frustrating because if I had, you know, if I had an early muzzleloader tag, I, I could have killed him. But, you know, having him out there at 100 and 120 yards is pretty frustrating when you got a bow in your hand. Right, for sure, for sure. So then um, talk to me about what did you do? Did you hit him and not find him, or did you miss him? Uh, I, on uh, November the 9th, I was in my hay bale blind. And there was a, um, just a, 
a matriarchal group of does that always came out on the same trail into this particular hayfield. And I was set up about 30 yards off of that. And here they came, and he was with one of them. Um, he was locked on her. Um, he was tending her. Um, and I really don't have a good answer for what happened. I mean, he was... He walked right past my hayfield blind at, at 30 yards, and I, I shot over him. I, I don't have a good answer for what happened other than I just choked. Yeah. Yeah. Man, it's all right, man. I've been there before, too. So um, so you ended up missing him. Did you see him any uh, time after that? Uh, yeah. Um, he ended up um, – I didn't see him all the rest of November, and then – during second shotgun season, um, actually the most unbelievable day of rutting activity I saw all season was in December during second shotgun. I had my wife with me. She had a, her shotgun tag. And I saw that buck and two other bucks that were over 160 and probably three bucks that were two and three-year-olds all fighting over um, an estrus doe um, for about an hour. Um, and he was, he was the one that was corralling the doe. He was fighting all these other bucks off. I mean, he had his tongue hanging out of his mouth. He was, you know, panting and, um, he ended up running past our blind at about 10 feet, um, full bore, just running as fast as he could go chasing this doe. Wow. Um, and we ended up seeing him one other time, um, during second shotgun. And then I saw him right at dark, um, on, uh, like January 2nd or 3rd. Man. So do you think he made it through the season? Uh, I know he did. I've, I've got trail camera pictures of him in, in February after the season. So, Oh, awesome. Awesome. So uh, do other people know about this, Buck? Uh, very few, and most of them don't live in Iowa. <laughs> Good. Good. You know, keep, keep it that way. Keep it that way. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a, a few of my close friends back home in North Carolina or whatever know, but, you know, now not, about 10, other than people. my wife, not really. And now 10,000 people. Yeah, well. <laughs> We're not going to give away the exact location of your farm. But, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty, uh, pretty frustrating but pretty cool uh, season chasing after him. I mean, I, I sure wish that I'd been able to keep my composure when he was at 30 yards, but hey, know, man. whatever. Hey, next year, this, you know, 2017, man. Uh, so you missed him. And then what happened? Then you had another encounter with another buck, a big one. Uh, I did. Um, so the number two deer on my list, um, although not probably the second highest scoring deer I had pictures of, I just, I love really, really big eight pointers. Right. And I had a lot of pic, like every single day pictures of this eight pointer that's probably right at 160. Really, really wide, massive eight point. And I kind of had him um, on my radar too because he was very, very patternable. Um, okay. I had him on, I had like five cameras on this particular farm and I only ever got him on two of them. So I knew he had a pretty small core area. He didn't really move a lot. And a lot of those pictures were in daylight. Um, and on one of the pictures, I, I 
pretty sure that um, I used Google Earth to pinpoint where this deer bedded exactly because he was always coming from the exact same direction when he would come into my camera in the evening. And right. he would always be headed back that way in the morning when he would come by. And so I actually used Google Earth and found this little bend in a creek bank that had, you know, just some willows on it. And I, I told my wife, I said, I bet you that deer lives right there. And so I, I hung a stand specifically for that deer before the season. And uh, I went in there um, early one morning um, and I, I actually used the creek. I walked down the creek to get into my stand and my stand's right on the edge of the creek. Okay. And uh, I just kind of, you know, needed to regroup, you know, from chasing that other deer and, you know, and uh, he actually got up out of his bed um, right at legal shooting light. Um, and he walked, um, 25 yards underneath me. Um, and I shot and my arrow hit, uh, one of those big horse weeds, those big reeds. Yeah. And it deflected my arrow and I, sh my arrow went into the center of his back ham and went, I got a complete pass through it, went all the way through him, but it struck him in the back ham. Okay. So a lot of blood or what? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I watched him run off about a hundred yards and then he laid down, he laid down for about an hour and then he got up and he walked another hundred yards and he laid down. And, uh, then about 20 minutes after that, he got up and he went over the hill where I couldn't see him. Right. And so I backed out, I mean, cause I knew it was an awful hit. I mean, I, I could see where I had hit him. Um, and so I came back the next day and I actually followed blood for almost half a mile. Um, and he had went a really, really long way. Um, and believe it or not, I actually jumped him, um, at like noon on the next day. Um, but he wasn't bedded down from being hurt. He was bedded down with a doe that he was tending. So I just, and I actually, uh, I got him on camera again, like a week later and he was fine. So I don't know how I, I went through both hams and didn't hit an artery, but you know, he, he survived just fine. Yeah. Man, I tell you what, those deer are tough. They are. Um, and I figured from him being wounded, he would probably drop his sheds early. And I had cameras out all year watching him. And he was probably one of the last bucks on that farm to shed. He didn't shed until like March 10th. Wow. Um, and I actually picked up one of his sheds. So Awesome. The story continues on that buck. Yeah, so they they both made it. They're both still out there. So, and then uh, real quick, we're running out of time here. But uh, January, what'd you say? January ninth. Yep. January ninth, you harvested a, a another a different eight pointer. Yeah, I did. Um, back on is actually on the same farm where the big two hundred deer lives. Um, I had this deer that every time I hunted, I saw this deer. He was just one of those really aggressive bully four-year-old eight points never going to be a, a big giant deer you know he's he's mid 140s eight point but literally every time i would go hunting he would be out there running other deer off running does it just he almost had like a scowl on his face he was just always in a bad mood <laughs> and uh i witnessed something in january that um i'd never seen before um and and that was the third estrus cycle. 
Um, and I can only attribute it to the fact that the doe numbers are so high on that property that they didn't all get bred the first cycle or the second cycle. Um, I actually went out hunting on uh, January um, the 7th, uh, which was going to be one of my last days to hunt because I was going to go to the ATA show. And I saw this little doe fawn come out a couple hundred yards away. Of course, I was muzzleloader hunting. And this buck was with her. And he was obviously tending her. Like her, her back end was all ruffled up, you know, where he'd been up on her. And he was following her just like it was November. Right. And this is January 7th. I'm like, really? And so I just saw him for a second. And so I decided to go back the next night on the 8th. Um, which was supposed to be my, my last night to hunt. I was, cause I was going to leave that evening and he came out again behind that one doe. And, you know, on this farm, I've never encountered the landowner when I've been hunting, but that particular night she decided to go for a walk. And as the doe fawn was just clearing my, my shooting lane, the landowner comes over the hill and both the deer spook and run back across the property line. Oh boy. So I was actually super bummed. I'm like, well, that figures that's how my season's going to end. Um, and so I got back home and I was actually talking to a buddy of mine and um, driving to the ATA show. And and he convinced me, he's like, you know, if that doe is really in heat, he's not going to leave her. You should go back. You can kill him tomorrow. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? What have I got to lose? So I, I went back to the same spot on on January 9th and he came out again right at dark and walked right by me um like 100 yards and i dropped him with the muzzle loader yeah nice nice well your uh, 2016 season ended well yeah i mean for everything that happened i'm i'm, I'm pretty pleased for right. for my first first iowa season awesome well are you excited for 2017 or what oh i'm I'm beyond excited. I've, <laughs> I've already got big plans for, for this year, a bunch of changes, and new farms, and I'm ready. Perfect, perfect. Well, Jordan, good luck this upcoming season, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, you too, Dan. And there you have it. Thank you very much, Jordan, for coming on the podcast. Uh, thanks for your story. Really appreciate it. Huge shout-out to each and every one of you listeners who are downloading this podcast and giving it a listen. I really appreciate it. Without you, none of this is possible. Huge shout out to the partners of this podcast, Ozonics, Gearhead, Exodus, Wasp, Ripcord, Deer Lab, and Lone Wolf. So be sure to check out those companies, guys. Uh, if it wasn't for them, this podcast doesn't happen as well. Uh, I'd have to go get a part-time job at a exotic dancers, uh, cause I'm a really good exotic dancer. So that's where I'd be spending most of my nights instead of behind this microphone, I'd be dancing and we all know you, no one wants to see that. <laughs> okay. I'm going to end this right now. Hopefully everybody has a good rest of your week. Thanks for tuning in. And if you're going to be in a tree, wear your damn safety harness.